so, after nine podcast episodes, we appear to have reached the start of the Walls of the Roses. That seems like a good point at which to step back a little and ask ourselves what those who are about to fight each other are actually fighting for. I read so frequently that the Wars of the Roses was a struggle for the throne between the houses of York and Lancaster. Yet surely nothing I have said so far bears that out. Let's consider the motives of the main combatants. King Henry VI was a peace-loving king, so why was he going to war? Firstly, Henry felt aggrieved that, despite what he saw as his best efforts, Richard, Duke of York, still refused to accept his decisions. Twice, at least, York had taken up arms against his sovereign lord, not to unseat the king, but to force him to submit to York's point of view. Whatever his reasons, this was manifestly treason, and a stronger, more vindictive king would have dismembered York for it a long time before 1459. So, even Henry's patience was exhausted. Always in the back of Henry's mind was the fear, or at the very least the suspicion, that York coveted the throne. Whilst Henry was childless, this was understandable since York saw himself, as many others did, as the heir presumptive. However, the birth of Prince Edward to Queen Margaret changed the political landscape. Henry had a male heir, and he also had every right to assume that his leading subjects would accept and support his young heir. The overwhelming majority did, as is shown by the strong, noble turnout in 1459. Almost every one of them backed the king. If some had a little sympathy for York, and quite possibly some doubts about the wisdom of the Queen's policies, they still backed Henry, their anointed king. What about the Queen, then, who had played an increasingly important role in events during the 1450s? What was she fighting for? Clearly, she was fighting for her husband's crown and her son's legacy. But what else? For her strength of purpose was one of the main reasons that war broke out. The events of St Albans in 1455, and especially the death of Edward Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, must have shocked Margaret as much as anyone. Yorkist stories would have us believe that she and the Duke of Somerset were lovers. It seems unlikely to me, but even so, his death would have been both a personal and a political blow to her. The way I see the Queen is that before 1455, her warnings about York had fallen pretty much on deaf ears. But after St Albans, the King himself and many of the nobility might well be wondering whether she was right all along about York. So in 1459, when, so to speak, the force was with her, it was not that surprising that she wanted to destroy York once and for all. The Neville leaders too would have to go, partly to keep the support of her Percy and Clifford allies, but also because they had the power to disrupt the kingdom, even without York as their figurehead. 
much vitriol has been directed at queen margaret and shakespeare is often blamed for that but it seems to me that only lazy historians use a character in a play as their starting point without her i think it was likely that england would have had a puppet king for the rest of henry's days would that have been a good thing i'm not so sure now let's examine the enigma that was Richard, Duke of York. If only we could reach inside his mind and see what he was thinking in 1459. Ah, the unsolved mysteries of history, but that's why we like it. For me, York's views evolved during the 1450s. At first, he simply wanted to take his place at the table, to be able to exert influence in the council, which he believed was his due as a leading nobleman. The problems arose out of his increasingly bitter and savage dispute with Edward Beaufort, Duke of Somerset. Ask yourself the question, are we to believe that York's hostility towards Somerset was entirely to do with corrupt and incompetent government? Are we to accept that York's motives were only for the common good? Well, I don't think we can. We can't simply dismiss the fact that Somerset was the Beaufort heir to the throne. Whether such an inheritance was legal or illegal was as irrelevant then as now. Laws can always be changed. The bold truth was that Somerset was a rival to York for the role of heir presumptive. In other words, possibly the next king. Everyone at court knew that. It was hardly a secret. Thus, every time the pair clashed, it was seen as a trial of strength. When Prince Edward arrived in 1453, a lot changed, but the intense rivalry between these two men remained, because given the king's failing health, especially his mental state, they were now rivals for a possible regency. So, as we have seen, the quarrel escalated, with each man trying to crush his opponent until St Albans, when York decided that there was only one course of action left. Somerset had to be taken out. But after Somerset was killed, what then? York discovered that his actions had forever destroyed any lingering trust the king might have placed in him. Thus, the king would never entrust his son to York's keeping and the Queen would certainly not do so. There was even less enthusiasm for his second protectorate than the first. Apart from the Nevilles, York lacked support even from those who might otherwise have supported him. In 1459, the Queen cleverly backed him into a corner so that he must capitulate or fight. If he won, he would have to secure his future and that would mean placing strict controls over the king, the queen, and the prince. Otherwise, history would repeat itself. The king would reject him, and the queen would try to destroy him. But how could he control a king? York surely must have considered the options at that point, if not before. What would he need to do if he won? Whether he took the throne or not, he would surely need to act with the power of a king. 
What then of York's vital allies, the Neville Earls, Salisbury and Warwick? Without their support, Richard Duke of York would probably only merit a footnote in history. One could go as far, I think, to suggest that without the actions of the Nevilles, there would have been no Wars of the Roses at all, or at least not in the form they took. The father, Richard Neville, Earl of Salisbury, had his eyes firmly fixed upon the North, for that was where, despite his rather confusing title, much of his power lay. His war was with the Percys and the Cliffords for northern dominance, and his alliance with his brother-in-law York had delivered that prize to him. The Percy Earl of Northumberland was slain at St Albans along with Lord Thomas Clifford, and the two northern families were weakened. Yet, as events in 1457-59 to 59 showed, Northumberland's heir, Henry Percy, and Clifford's son, John, were not prepared to surrender their influence so easily. Salisbury realised that in 1459, his situation was actually worse than in the middle of the decade. In 1453, the Crown was unwilling to act against the Percys, but now the Crown positively supported them. Given the long and sometimes violent feud between the two families, it is not that surprising that both Salisbury and Henry Percy thought that only war could solve their problem. If we turn to Salisbury's son, the younger Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, the motives were a little different. Warwick, thanks to the most lucrative marriage of the century, had immense land holdings and income from many areas of England, eclipsing those of his father and rivalling even those of York himself. The North was of particular concern to him, but he saw himself as a player on the national stage, a man who might influence kings. Warwick was not averse to the use of force, as his leading part in the Battle of St Albans showed. But I suspect that he and York were not quite on the same page in 1459. If York was contemplating removing the king, Warwick certainly had no intention of doing so in 1459. Warwick did not carry the same baggage as York, since he had no claim to the throne. Thus, for such a man as Warwick, only recently appointed as captain of Calais, the move to war, however inevitable it might seem, would also be most regrettable if it ended his own political ambitions. So, as York and the Devils headed for Ludlow, where they were to gather their forces, they were probably a little muddled as to what they hoped to achieve beyond personal survival. Nevertheless, the fate of the kingdom hung by a thread as uncertain as it had been at any time since the deposition of Richard II in 1399, almost 60 years earlier. But 1459 was not a continuation or a revisiting of 1399. Don't let anyone tell you that those about to fight each other in 1459 had any thoughts about ancient history. They were focused on where they were going, not where others had gone. And trust me, where they were going was quite bad enough. <laughs>